This morning's scripture reading is from Psalms number 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said all of this, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Have you ever wondered if being a Christian, following God, is really worth it? And I know you wouldn't want to say that outside, out loud, typically, but inside have you struggled with that? It's a narrow road we're called to. It's a steep hill we're called to climb. It's a path of suffering. And as we look around us, there's so much suffering in the world, 
often good people, people who are trying to follow God, seem to suffer more than those who are godless. Have you ever thought about quitting? I have. I've told the story before. I've been a Christian for about four years. Things had gone pretty well in my Christian life. I kind of like this Christian thing, you know. And then I went through a time, a year, basically, of real struggle, discouragement, frustration. The old formulas didn't seem to work. I was trying to do good, and yet I ended up, my life just being a mess, broken relationships, a variety of things. And I literally got to the point of saying one day, God, if this is Christianity, it doesn't work. I quit. If you've ever been there or near there, you're not alone. Neither am I. Today we're looking at a psalm, Psalm 73, written by Asaph. Asaph's a very interesting biblical character. We know a fair amount about him. He was a guy who was chosen by the Levites to be worship leader. David said, hey, choose somebody from among you, the Levites, the godly tribe. Choose one person to be your worship leader. They said, Asaph's the guy. David said, yes, you're right. And he appointed him as the worship leader over the temple worship. Asaph wrote a number of wonderful psalms that we have still recorded, including this one. And yet, as we see in this psalm, this spiritual leader in Israel, he almost lost his faith. He doubted. He struggled. And I think this is a reflection for all of us that pretty much anybody who is honest about the world and looking at it and seeing the struggles and the pain of it, and the struggles of their own life, will at some point struggle with that unfairness and the injustices of this world and doubt their faith and be tempted, at least, to walk away. When you see how good guys suffer terribly and bad guys prosper, it's a great mystery and struggle for us. But this psalm, Psalm 73, shows us the journey that Asaph took as he struggled and went away from God, turned around and came back. And I believe as we follow his journey, we can see how that kind of journey, that kind of honesty before God, can actually lead us to a deeper intimacy with God than we've ever experienced before. Pray with me if you would, and we'll look at the psalm together. Lord, once again, we see how honest the scriptures are. They are true to our experience. As biblical saints like Asaph dealt with the same struggles we deal with. As we look at this journey that Asaph took, may you use your word to help us find you to be our all in all to be all we really desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He introduces this psalm, Asaph does, by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
See, this is his conclusion. He concludes by saying God is good. He came to that point. But it's a reminder that when we face tough circumstances, when there's suffering, we see when good people, either ourselves or other people who are trying to follow God, end up in great suffering, it makes us question whether God is good. Asaph struggled with whether God was really good. Chris Riddell was senior pastor for a number of years here at Cole, and he liked to start every message with, God is good (laughs) all the time. God is good. We've said that if you'd been around during those days. We were used to that. It's a wonderful statement of faith. And yet deep down, I think we all struggle with that at times. Ever since the fall, ever since the serpent talked to Eve and said, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that? You know, God is lying to you. He's holding out on you. You will not die. God says you'll die. You won't. In fact, God knows you'll be like him if you eat from the tree. You see, what the serpent planted in Eve's mind was this doubt about whether you could really trust God. Is God really good? Or is he holding out on you? And every one of us has struggled with that very thing ever since. Is God really good or is he holding out on us? And that's exactly where Asaph is struggling. Is God really good? He got to the point, he says in verse 2, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I nearly walked away from my faith. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What led him away from God? What led him into this struggle? He envied the arrogant. Notice when he says wicked, the prosperity of the wicked. Don't take that as the really, really evil, bad people that should be in jail and done away with. No. Uh, In his thinking, in a good Israelite's thinking, there were those who followed God and there was everybody else the wicked. These aren't necessarily bad people all the time. They're just people who don't follow God. They're not trusting him. And he says he looked around and he saw, saw with his eyes, saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that began his downward slide. Let's look at his downward slide, verses 4 through 14. We see, first of all, his view of the ungodly, unbelievers. What's his view of unbelievers? Well, for verse 4 and 5, he says, they have an easy life. As I look, as I observe their lives, these people who don't follow God but are masters of their own fate, they have an easy life. They have no struggles. They have health and wealth. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. They have it easy. Things come easy to them. They're not struggling with the things that we seem to struggle with, those who follow God. It seems like their cars don't break down. Their water heaters don't go out. They get to live in nice houses. They don't have the financial struggles that we have trying to follow God. They just don't seem to struggle. Why do good people struggle when they don't? They've got it easy. 
Then in verse 6 through 8, he goes deeper and he says, they've got it easy, but look at their lives. They live immoral lives. Their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. He says, you know, if you, if you get close to them, the first thing you really notice about them, you know, is someone's clothing, right? And he says their pride is their necklace. They're proud. You notice that right away. Ha! I'm handling life. I've got it together. I'm pulling it off myself. I did it my way. Self-dependent, self-made man or woman. Pride is their necklace. And their garment is violence. They grab for whatever they want. If they have to take it from somebody else, hey, that's the way it works. That's the way of the world. And it goes on to say, not only that, but from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They have no real conscience. You know, they go their own way. They... There's no limits to what they might do to others. They sleep around. They cheat on taxes. They use other people. Asaph is looking at this and he says, essentially saying, how come they got it so good? They're immoral people. And God, I thought you reap what you sow. If you do good, you get blessed. If you do bad, you get bad stuff. But I don't see that. I'm looking with my eyes around me and I do not see that. Can you relate to Asaph, his struggle here? Not only that, but they completely reject God. Oh, they may be religious people. They may even go to church. But deep down, the way they live, they reject God. Verses 9 through 11. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Essentially, they're saying, he's saying, I look at them, and they essentially are trying to take God's place. They lay claim to heaven and earth. They decide we're masters of our own fate. Who needs God? God's absent. He's not even here. I'm running my own life. I'm in charge. And people follow them, thinking that they are the source of abundant life, that they know best. And they say things like, God really doesn't know. You know, maybe God set the world in motion. Maybe it's like a clockmaker, you know, we wound it up. But he's not involved. He doesn't care. He doesn't even know what's going on. He's not going to do anything about it. So I better take life in my own hands. God's sitting in his armchair, ignoring what goes on down here. He's not even paying attention. And Asaph observes this about so many people around him, the unbelieving world around him, and it confuses him. He's saying that these people are essentially what Bruce Waltke calls practical atheists. They may go to church, believe in God, whatever, but they live as though God doesn't exist. It's a good challenge for us to think about if God did not exist, would your entire world fall apart? Or if God, you found out God didn't exist, would you be able to just continue functioning as you are? Do we live as practical atheists who live in our lives as if God really isn't there? That's what Asaph observes about these people, and so he summarizes it in verse 12. 
This is what the wicked are like, unbelieving world is like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Asaph has looked around, he's looked at the world, and he says, man, they've got it good. Unbelievers have it good. They reject God, but it doesn't matter. They've got the wealth. That's how he views the unbelieving world. But notice how from that perspective that he's fallen into, this downward slide, how he also views himself. Verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. You hear the depths of that cry where he says, I've really tried to do what's right. I have tried to keep my heart and my hands, my actions pure. And where has it gotten me? Nowhere. Look at how well they're doing and how poorly I'm doing. There's been no return on this investment for me. And then in verse 14, he says, All day long I've been plagued. It's like life's always hard all the time. I have been punished every morning. It's like God is out to get me. I thought I was on your side, God. So he says, here's the reality. I've gotten nothing in return for all my hard work for God but a hard life. I feel struck down, punished, spanked by life. It's been a waste. The wicked get wealth and happiness, and I don't. It's like my friend who came to me who had been a church leader, been involved in church leadership, really had done a lot of ministry, but had gone through some especially hard things, and he came to me and he said, you know, it's obvious God doesn't want me to be happy because he's given me all this hard stuff. If I'm going to be happy, I've got I've to take it in my own hands. And he walked out. Asaph is almost there. He's ready to walk out. Because he's so upset and confused. Well, if we're honest, all of us can relate to Asaph. If we look around, this seems pretty obvious. What is wrong with the way he's looking around? What's wrong with his worldview? Well, let me highlight two things I think jump out at me that got Asaph into this mess of where he's confused as he looks around at his life. First, is that he's judging and evaluating the world by sight, by what he can see. Bruce Walkie puts it this way, he's establishing his worldview only from what he sees, rather than from Scripture. Judging life by only what we see, depending on our own perspective, only what we can perceive by our own perception. Folks, this is natural for us, but it is always dangerous because we cannot see well. Os Guinness, the great Christian thinker and writer, 
calls this having a keyhole perspective. You know, you come up to the door and there's a tiny keyhole and you peek through with one eye and you can just barely see hardly anything on the other side of the door and yet you design your whole worldview on the little tiny bit you can see. Asaph was doing that. We can often tend to do that, but it always gets us in trouble trying to understand the world from the little bit that I can see from my limited perspective. It's like standing on the street corner in some major city. Pick one you've been to, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, New York, whatever. And you're standing on a street corner, tall buildings everywhere, and you can see down just these four streets, and you're looking, and you're trying to determine the whole layout of the entire city from your limited perspective. You'd be a fool. You can't see. You you can't see reality. You're, You're limited to a tiny little place. And yet, that's what Asaph is doing. Boy, this is what I see, and so it determines my whole worldview. No, folks, that's dangerous. We must not do that. We'll always be wrong if that's what we're doing. So the first confusing part of his worldview, what he's doing wrong, is he's judging by what he sees. Secondly, what Asaph is doing wrong is he is making material prosperity his greatest good. Again, verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Look how they're prospering, he says several times. Look how they've got it made. They've got stuff. And therefore, they're a lot happier. He's looking at life in a way that says, material prosperity is my greatest good. Not following God, obeying Him. Trusting Him, knowing Him is my greatest good. No, the world around us naturally falls into a materialistic worldview that what I have is my greatest good. Again, that's always dangerous. He's saying what's important is being materially prosperous and I'm not getting it. And folks, this is the essential spirit of American life. We're surrounded by that worldview all the time. What's most important, the greatest good, oh, there's other goods, but the greatest good is material prosperity. Think of foreign visitors coming, I've heard several descriptions of this, coming to the United States, you know, and walking around in our cities. And they've said things like, Oh, I see temples everywhere. I see what you worship in America. There's huge buildings, multi-story skyscrapers. And what do they have on them? The names of banks, insurance companies, businesses. What do we worship? Money. Stuff. Think about the way we feel as a society. What gives us security and what doesn't? When the economy drops, when things get economically tight for us, our security goes out the window. What does that tell you that we depend upon for our greatest good as a culture? Stuff. 
Think about the way we do our polls, political polls. It's just a one-to-one ratio. If the economy's doing good, we say, man, I really like who's in office. If the economy tanks, get that bum out of there. <laughs> man, get rid of him. Again, what does that tell you about our culture? We're materialistic culture, and that's what we depend on. Asaph is making that same mistake that we so easily fall into, making materialism our greatest good. And it's got him confused about reality. Basing our worldview on sight, keyhole perspective, and on materialism as our greatest good will only lead to what it led to for Asaph. Envy of others who have more, because there's always somebody who has more. Resentment towards others. Resentment towards God. God, you're not good. You're holding out on me. And a doubting of God's goodness. Just as it did for Asaph, this godly man, this spiritual leader. So how did Asaph keep from falling completely away from God? What kept him from going there? Verses 15 through 17. Notice this transition in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. The first thing that kind of put, stopped him right where he was, Asaph, is he's thinking about, man, I'm ready to just tube God because he's not coming through for me. The first thing that stopped him was the sense of responsibility towards God's children. Was it his own children? Was it literal children in the community? Was it the people of God because he was a spiritual leader? I don't know, but whatever it did, it made him realize, whoa, I don't, I don't want to betray them. I've got a responsibility to other people who are looking to me for leadership. And folks, I think that's a God-given sense of responsibility. This doesn't just affect me. My choices affect other people. And that at least stopped him from going too far. That sense of responsibility is often a gift from God. Like for the wife or husband who says, my marriage is unfulfilling. If it was just up to me, I'd walk out. But for the sake of the kids, I'm going to stay. Well, you know what? That's probably a good choice. Now, it's not a good choice to just go on with the marriage as it is, a mess, and not do anything about it. Go get help. Stay in the marriage, but go get help for your marriage. Don't just survive it. That sense of responsibility stopped Asaph. And then in verse 16, he's, now he's beginning to mull it over. Okay, I've got to figure this out. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. He said, I couldn't figure it out. I, again, from my limited perspective, it all didn't make sense to me. And I struggled until, he says, I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, literally, Asaph was a leader in the temple, in the sanctuary. He led worship there. He experienced and led corporate worship. So when he says, I came into the sanctuary, it may be partly what he's talking about is simply what we're doing this morning, gathering as the people of God. And as he gathered with the people of God and sang to one another the truths, the great hymns, the great psalms of truth, and he heard it from the voices of the faithful. 
it allowed him to change his perspective. But I think we also come into the sanctuary of God. We encounter God when we just spend time in his word and prayer with an open heart. But that's the only thing that could begin to break him free from his limited perspective and help him begin to get God, God's perspective was to encounter God corporately, individually. But folks, you have to, you have to spend time in God's word prayerfully with an open heart. Otherwise, you just get sucked into thinking like the rest of the world around you. It's just natural. It just happens unless you are taking on God's perspective and dwelling in the sanctuary of God. That's what Asaph learned here as part of the worshiping community. What that does for you when you choose to live by faith, not by sight, okay, believing that God's involved, believing in God's perspective, it's like suddenly you take on God's perspective instead of standing on a street corner surrounded by buildings and you can't really see what's going on, you suddenly get a satellite view of the city. You suddenly go, oh, I get it. I see. Yeah, go, yeah, okay. You see, when you come into God's presence, you encounter God, he gives you his eyes to see, of eyes of faith, to see reality. And that's why he says, not that I see reality, but he says, I understood reality. He understood it because God revealed it to him when he came into God's presence. And now his worldview has changed. How has it changed? Well, remember his old view of the wicked. Man, they got it easy. Everything's great. Listen to what his new view of unbelievers is. Verse 18 through 20 says this. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one wakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Before he said, man, they got it easy. I envy them. Now he's going, man, they're on death row. <laughs> they are in trouble. They think they got it good. They're about to be swept away into eternal damnation. How in the world could I envy that? Judgment is coming. God is a moral God. He will judge immorality. He will judge sin. Boy, are they in trouble. <laughs> wow. See how his perspective's changed? Why would I want to envy that? <laughs> and then verse 20 says, you know what? Before you, they're just like ghosts, like fantasies. They're, there's no substance to them. They're done for. They've had it. The unbelieving world is a mess. They're nothing compared to God. He's all-powerful, working at his plan. So see how his perspective has changed? Because he came into the sanctuary. He doesn't envy them anymore. And secondly, his whole view of himself has changed dramatically as well. Remember his old view? He was full of grief and bitterness and anger, envy, and he thought, I've, done, I've been good for nothing. <laughs> Hasn't got me anywhere. What a waste. 
Listen to what he says now after coming into the sanctuary. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He realizes where he was. I was a mess. I, I was embittered. I was consumed by my own selfish perspective. I was a fool, God. I was a beast, and a beast judges only by what he sees. You see, we have the opportunity to take on imagination and see God at work in everything, even though our senses don't perceive that, but we can understand that because that's the reality. But a beast can't do that. And he says, I was like a beast. I wasn't even looking at reality. But here's the amazing thing. Verse 23, he says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. He says, I was a beast. I was ignoring you. I was resentful. I was bitter. I was angry. And yet, all that time, you were holding my hand. You were loving me. You were wooing me back with your love and your care. I was loved and cared for by you all the way through that and you continue to guide me by your spirit and you've given me the hope of heaven that I'll be with you forever. Wow. Your grace is amazing. I'm a recipient of that grace and that love. I know I don't deserve it. I was a beast and yet you loved me and continue to love me and will continue to love me to the very end. Asaph is overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God toward him who doesn't deserve it. And then what he finally learned about his own heart through this, verse 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion Forever. Notice what he learned about his own heart. I used to think what I really wanted was money, wealth, comfort, success, status, power. But now that I've been touched by your love, I realize what I really long for is that kind of love. I desire none of this earthly stuff, he says. But I've learned of something about my heart that what my heart really longs for is you, my God, my Savior. I don't want all this other stuff, really. See how his worldview has changed? His perspective has changed. He's realized, yeah, my heart is a God-shaped vacuum and nothing can satisfy it. I've been trying to stuff other things in. It doesn't work. All I really long for is you, my God, my strength, my portion forever. So he concludes in verse 27 and 28. Those who are far from you will perish. That's his whole new worldview of unbelievers. They're under judgment. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. He says, this is what I've learned. They're under judgment, but God is good. And being near to you is my greatest good. Notice how he's gone on this journey. 
from resenting God, angry at God, why aren't you coming through for me, to a place where he longs for God and realizes all he really desires is God himself. Have his circumstances changed? Not one bit. But his whole worldview has been transformed. So now he truly believes that God is his refuge and that God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, your word is so awesome. So real. Because we can relate to Asaph. It's hard to live in a world that's so unfair and where unbelievers seem to do so well and we struggle so much. Lord, help us be a people that come into your sanctuary so we learn truly to have a correct and right, a satellite view of both unbelievers and of ourselves so that we might realize that what we desire above all else is you and that being near to you is our greatest, greatest good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.